Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Another great episode this week. We have George of Bespoke, the uh, short-term lending platform. We've talked about it before on this show. Uh, cannabis needs debt. Now it has some debt. Uh, we talk about how companies need debt normally, but in the time of Corona, they may need it more than ever. His business is booming. It's one of the ways you may be able to stick around after all this is over. Uh, we get into some other topics, black market and taxes and all that good stuff, but mainly this is about survival. Uh, and George is here to tell you just, just one way that might make sense, but uh, it's a great episode, guys. Uh, I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, George, thanks so much for joining us. Been excited to do this episode for some time now. I yeah. guess we met, I don't know, once upon a time, I think at a conference maybe in the Bay Area. Um, but our connection more formally was Judson, a friend of mine and now an employee of yours. Yep. Uh, but welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad we could finally do this after uh, the delays. <laughs> After the delays, I, for good reason. I mean, we're trying to Very be safe and, and we're going to get into the fact you're super busy at the moment, which is kind of different uh, for most people. Um, but yeah, Corona. So it took us a little longer. Uh, but welcome. Welcome regardless. Uh, excited to have you here. And um, let's get started just with how things are going in this time of Corona. I mean, kind of more people need your services than ever in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, no, we've definitely seen an increase when it comes to inbound inquiry companies that are, you know, there's a lot of broader market volatility when it comes to the financing space. Um, for cannabis, the equity capital markets, as everyone knows, the conditions had worsened starting in late 2019. So there was some element of the industry dealing with this a little bit in advance, having to game plan their capital making decisions. Um, so they were, the industry has been a little introduced to this, but obviously with the whole pandemic and everything going on in the markets right now, companies have really been forced to reevaluate sort of how they manage their capital raising, their working capital, their liquidity on an ongoing basis. And so debt, which you know is not broadly available to the industry outside of um, you know I'd say even a handful of sources has just become a much more attractive value proposition and sometimes it does take a seismic change like this in order to force people to evaluate other options and really consider the benefits of using something like debt financing. So uh, yeah, the end result has been you know having a lot more conversations across the board, um, but at the same time cannabis's unique position in this pandemic, um, even as there are shutdowns across virtually every industry, makes it very attractive. And I think we are just very fortunate to be caught in this position where we can actually help the industry take advantage of this opportunity, survive through this volatility, and really come out stronger, I think, in all, not just for individual companies, but the industry overall. Well, I think it's really interesting to note that if you turn on CNN and, and they're talking about the stimulus bills, right? And, and a certain, I can't remember exactly the, the number, but some hundreds of billions of dollars was dedicated towards these SBA loans, right? To, mm -hmm. to maintain payroll and rent and everything, which your customer, cannabis companies, are, don't have no access to of any kind. That's right. Um, and so it's, it's created this huge void in which it was already becoming increasingly popular to have debt in a cannabis company, but now they really have no option, right? 
Yeah, no, it's it's very tough. And I think, you know, ignoring the fact that we are a lender ourselves to the industry, I think it is rather unfair, um, particularly on a state level, if you look at this industry in terms of what they contribute uh, from a tax basis, what they contribute from an employment basis. This is one of the new emerging industries in the country that I would say is a good source of job creation and of tax revenue for local, state, municipalities, um, federal even. And so it, it, you know, ignoring the fact that the industry's just been stressed from the outset of recreational markets, the fact that they're dealing with issues in terms of limited banking, higher regulation and taxing now to enter into a stressful period and not receive any support, I think is, you know, really unfortunate. And it's very stressful for a lot of small and mid-sized companies that I think deserve that support just as much as any other industry. So without getting into any specific names, what type of cannabis company is most likely to come to you right now? Because I mean, there are some companies that are still selling a lot of product, right? Yep. Yeah, no. And that's been a theme that we've heard of, not just from across our existing borrowers and clients, but also from new conversations we've had. And quite frankly, the inbound inquiries come from across the entire supply chain. I think that's one of the attractive parts of our financing and our different financing products is that regardless of where you sit, you're dealing with some working capital limitation, whether it's long cash flow collection cycles, whether it's having enough bandwidth to source raw materials and inputs for your production. And so what we've seen is just interest from everything from cultivation all the way down through dispensary and everything in between because, you know, cannabis is in this unique position with its now essential medicine carve out where we've all read the headlines about scale sales skyrocketing going into the quarantine and shutdown the dispensaries have been allowed to continue operation. And just given the high flow of product, the challenge now has been how do you keep product moving and restocking inventory? And so, you know, I'd say regardless of where you sit, you're dealing with a situation where you just need more bandwidth and the freedom to capitalize on this moment. And, you know, that's been the general theme of, of conversations we've had across the board. Got it. So I want to dive a little bit into what you said there, just to sort of get out of the Corona moment, right? Mm -hmm. And just talk about the business model as a whole, which is very, very important, regardless of the crisis that we're in, even if that's yep. accelerated it a bit. Um, I think we should start by people listening to this show, like they may or may not know that most businesses have debt. Yeah. <laughs> and in the cannabis industry for a long time, that was just unavailable, right? Yep. Some, some of the SBA stuff that we were talking about earlier as well. But it's been almost always bootstrapped or venture. That's right. Which has a whole different risk profile and pros and cons, and we can get into those, but we have on this show many times. Mm -hmm. So what I want to talk about here is like, I know that your debt doesn't come at a cheap price, mm -hmm. but talk about a little bit of the balance between founders saying, okay, I could raise equity or I can take on this debt and how you talk about that sort of decision. Sure. Yeah. And part of this is just given where the industry starting from the standpoint of legal on a state basis, illegal on a federal basis, institutional investors really not being allowed to enter into the space. And so, you know, if you rewind the clock, you know, especially in the California market um, into early 2018, into the early part of 2019, 
you know, these investors that came in from the VC side, they, I believe, had forecasted much higher growth rates for the industry than ultimately materialized for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't think it was an incorrect assumption. Uh, I personally believe that cannabis will morph into a large vanilla consumer product industry like any other. And so it will take its place eventually alongside other industries. And I think that's what investors were looking at at the time. Unfortunately, very industry-specific challenges have, you know, not allowed that growth to really translate right out of the gate, which is understandable. And so the fundraising environment where you look at investors now having to reprice what their forecasts are and really looking at where previous raises and valuations had come in versus new current conditions and what they're forecasting going forward, it's challenging and it's very tough. And, you know, if you look at uh, in a CFO position or in a leadership position, you're evaluating options. So I'd say the valuations you were receiving from the equity capital markets in 2019 were very frothy. Um, they were very exuberant. You had very good access to large scale capital with, you know, no real terms other than the sense that you're diluting down control of your business and bringing on investors and new, new voices into the company. Fast forward to today, it's a much different dynamic. The valuations that you get from the equity capital markets, I think, are, are far more dilutive for the owners and the operators of these businesses. And so it's all relative. Our rates have generally remained about fixed um, from the time we have started this, uh, this company. And so I think the value proposition has increased. But also, I think the non-dilutive aspect of it, the ability to retain control of your companies, I think uh, operators are starting to appreciate that a lot more. And from a top-down perspective, you know, if your thesis is that this is ultimately going to morph into a regular vanilla consumer product industry, then to your point, yes, some component of debt financing has to exist. It's a very cost-effective way to lever up operations, to manage your cash flow, and to really retain control of the, the future of your company. And so I think all of this is coming together and the smarter companies that we deal, deal with and the companies that are more forward-looking, I think are starting to appreciate that difference and that nuance. And I think, you know, it's a message that slowly will bleed in. But to be fair, you know, for a lot of these companies, debt financing just wasn't broadly available. So they hadn't spent a lot of time evaluating it before versus now. It has to be a serious point of consideration for any company, just given what's available for all of them. Um, and, and just for listeners, like, you do have to have cash flow to qualify for this kind of debt, right? We're not talking about a convertible note here. We're not talking about a safe, like that you're, you're lending. Well, we should get into some of the products. What do you lend against directly? What, who qualifies for this kind of debt? Sure, yeah. So we've done a lot of work addressing the hurdles that are keeping traditional and alternative lenders out of the space. And a lot of that has been informed by the experience of our sister company, Produce Pay, which is uh, a a fintech platform that was founded by my two other co-founders, Ben and Pablo, in 2014. They serviced an industry that's really been overlooked by traditional and alternative lenders. And so what that involved, what that requires is you have to go in there, you have to figure out how you underwrite risk appropriately, how you gauge each borrower in the absence of broadly available data. There are no credit bureaus, there's no credit history. And so that's really helped us leapfrog a lot of the issues when it comes to evaluating a space that most people haven't looked at from a lender's framework. And so when we look at companies and applicants that come in, you know, for us, 
there's two sides of our view. One is regulatory due diligence, right? We want to ensure that we're only servicing companies that are operating within the legal market um, and not in the gray and not in the black. So that's standard across the board. Beyond that, from a financial perspective, what we like working with are companies that have established business models, that have an engine, let's say, that works appropriately, but can use additional fuel by way of capital to tighten up that cash flow cycle. You know, there's a whole host of expenses you deal with just as a regular business owner that's compounded in the cannabis space between taxes, between regulatory obligations, between testing fees, you name it. And so I think the ability for us to see that this is a business that works in principle, that the leaders and the team have really focused on execution, but now they just need that additional help of capital, not just to make their own processes more efficient, but also to allow them to be in a position to take advantage of new business opportunities, to grow into new markets, to broaden out their offering, to, you know, sell on more attractive terms. You know, there's, there's a variety of ways that you can use our financing products. And so part of it is solving problems in the sense of, I don't have enough cash flow coming in to manage my business. Part of it is looking at it as a useful tool. How do I use this to enhance my business even if everything is currently working as it should be? You know, there's definitely more opportunity out there, especially in this environment. And so we try to solve problems and enable companies to do more. Got it. That's a great answer. Um, specifically though, there's this invoice, inventory, and PO. Can you kind of talk about the differences there and, and why somebody might want to use those? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, our various financing products are essentially tiered based off of where on the balance sheet these companies are facing their issues. And so our invoice financing is a very straightforward product. You know, if you are selling product to your customer, issuing an invoice, but then ultimately not collecting for a period of 75 or 90 days, um, just given challenges within the lack of banking that, that the industry deals with on an ongoing basis, our invoice financing is a product that allows you to borrow against those future receivables. And so you have a way to access capital immediately to use as you need. And ultimately, when those invoices do pay, you are collecting the excess of those, those invoice amounts um, and it flows through bespoke. And what that does is, you know, any large AR balance that sits on your balance sheet, it's a lockup of your working capital that you cannot access. And so what we're doing is helping unlock value on the balance sheet. Our second product, purchase money financing, that's more a way for, you know, if you're in the middle of the supply chain, let's say you're an extraction facility that is receiving POs or has good interest from your client side in order to, you know, they want your product, they want you to produce goods for them, but you are unable to turn around and acquire the raw materials, the packaging, whatever the case may be, just because you're waiting on this long cash flow collection cycle or you're already fully expent in terms of your, your bandwidth from a capital perspective. Our purchase money financing is a way for us to finance that transaction, whereby we will finance the acquisition of your raw materials, allow you a period to finish production of goods and sell to customers, and ultimately we collect from your customers directly. The inventory financing product that we offered, it was you know our second product that we offered, and it really just focuses on managing your cost of purchasing raw materials and input. So any company that's just, you know, 
having trouble acquiring biomass in the middle of a harvest, or you're dealing with vendors that are demanding COD and customers that aren't paying until day 90, it's uh, a way by which we finance your acquisition of raw materials. And so depending on wherever the bottleneck is for the company, um, we try to get creative in terms of utilizing one of those products uh, just to make sure that we unlock all the value there for the operators. Is there a particular case study or sort of example of company that, that you like to talk about? I mean, even a brand that you, you want to mention? I, I don't know if you want to do that or not. Well, I mean, uh, part, part of our, our business is obviously, you know, operators are very, very uh, sensitive about their own financing. That's interesting though, right? Activity. Because you, you see yeah. these like big articles at the high level, right? Like MedMen took on X amount of new debt, right? And, and they right. almost look at it like, oh, this is a funding round. Right. And if you read it the right way, it's not, but right. yeah. Right. Yeah. I think the, the challenge with the cannabis space is that, you know, especially in California, there's been this cannabis culture and this cannabis market within the medicinal space that's existed for over a decade. And if you look at pre-recreational, a lot of the debt financing you would get would be from hard money lenders. It would be from, you know, supply sources of capital that you would associate with stressed corporations more so than thriving companies that are really just remaining dynamic and flexible and adapting to current situations. So I think there's a little bit of overhang from the idea that, uh, you know, debt is somehow frowned upon. It's something that a desperate company would do, um, which I think is completely not the case. Yeah. All of, you know, across the board, all of our operators and clients on the platform, you know, conversations we've had this month have been sales are increasing, everything's moving as it should be. They have the carve out for essential medicine. And so their focus has been utilizing our financing to really take advantage of this opportunity. And so there's a little bit of stigma, I think, that needs to be erased um, from the cannabis industry's mindset when you look at debt financing to understand that it doesn't mean that you're stressed. It just means that you're really looking at all your capital sources and picking something that really makes sense for you, not just from a financing perspective, but also from a long-term perspective in the sense of who has control of your company and how much of that, you know, are you diluting if you were to go down the equity, equity fundraising road? Yeah. And if you were an investor in one of these companies, you definitely want them to take on the debt because just as it's non-dilutive for the founders, same for the investors. No, that's right. And it really does, especially in this environment, right? Where startups across the board, you know, cannabis or not, you know, you're seeing, funding sources dry up, you're seeing the valuations you get on these equity raises materially worsen absent of even any material impact to your business. And so the idea of, you know, do we want to go out and dilute ourselves and give up control in a really unfavorable environment? Or do we want to utilize financing that comes and addresses all the problems and gives us the bandwidth to operate as we should? And then, you know, wait until market conditions improve, wait until you grow to a position where you can really meaningful, meaningfully hit a much larger valuation. I think these are all considerations that, that every company should be making right now. Yeah. Um, I want to step back a little bit and talk about your background and that leads into why you started this company or how you started this company rather. Sure. Um, I guess the, the starter question is, I mean, you have this rich finance background. Clearly you were in the Wall Street world. I'm, I'm looking on snooping on your LinkedIn, Goldman <laughs> Sachs, and, you know, I mean, NYU, you clearly were in that world. Like, why cannabis? You know, why, why do you want to be in this thing? 
You could have done anything. Literally, you could have done anything, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, you know, I had decided very early on that finance had been the road for me. I grew up in New York, um, worked in investment banks like uh, Goldman, um, went to Guggenheim Investment uh, Management after on where I spent eight years. And uh, if you look at my time spent there, you know, it, the vast majority of the time has been focused on the structured credit and really esoteric lending spaces. Um, and if you remember back to the previous crisis in 2008, 2009, coming out of that recession, uh, a lot of banks had retreated from financing industries that they were very active in before, before the crisis. And so working at a large institutional money manager, all of these companies realized that, you know, stepping into this void left by banks retreating offered them as lenders an opportunity to earn outsized yields and lend with structures that are more lender favorable, right? So it was a very opportunistic moment for the industry. And so I spent, you know, eight years as a portfolio manager, analyst, reviewing all sorts of really funky deals where you had to underwrite the value of the asset. You had to really understand what the specific risks were for these non-vanilla industries. And the results spoke for themselves. You know, that sector outperformed dramatically. And so I had spent a lot of time sort of looking at financing within non-vanilla spaces. Halfway through my time at Guggenheim, I had moved to Los Angeles in 2013. So I had seen the growth of the cannabis industry coming up, you know, particularly after the recreational market opened up. And, you know, I've always been a, a debt credit focused um, financial professional. Um, and that was something that didn't exist for the cannabis space. Um, and so... I realized the opportunity. I saw cannabis as a growing industry with a lot of opportunity as opposed to, you know, the industries such as finance, which are very mature and very sizable. But I think, you know, primarily dealing with margin compression and, you know, consolidation across the board. And so cannabis just seemed one very attractive from an opportunistic standpoint. But also, I just fundamentally believe in the product and the industry. I think this plant has been vilified for a long time. I think we have to undo a lot of that damage. I think it's been hugely costly for us as a society, you know, whether you're looking at incarceration rates, whether you're looking at, you know, how it's impacted poverty-stricken neighborhoods more so than others. And so, you know, the idea of really being able to help build this industry and play my part, whatever it is, just seemed very appealing and very exciting. And ultimately, I think it'll do a lot of good for society. You know, it's, it's, I think there's a lot more about this plant that we don't know right now than we do know. It's encouraging to see the investment um, on the scientific side to understand how we can better help people, you know, in a nation where you're dealing with an opioid crisis and, you know, just stresses of day-to-day -day living and even, you know, just comfort for, you know, terminal patients and all of that. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of different avenues that this can really help uh, across the board. And, you know, and the idea of getting involved with that just seemed very, very exciting and very appealing for me, both professionally and personally. Were you a consumer? Are you a consumer? I, yeah. I, yeah, I am and have been. I was a late entrant into the cannabis world, um, you know, in my mid 20s I never really did it. You know, I come from a very conservative Indian family. Um, and, you know, to my point of cannabis being vilified, it just never was something that I had tracked in. Um, and then in my mid 20s, you know, I couldn't exactly tell you why I just decided, 
I would give it a shot. And I was really pleasantly surprised by, you know, a lot of the myths that you hear about it and, and um, about its usage, I just found just were not true. And I found it to be very helpful for me just on a personal level. And I also had, you know, friends and family that were dealing with, you know, cancer or chronic pain. And so, you know, especially when I was in LA, I would bring, um, you know, CBD tablets or, or, you know, whatever I could over to my friends and family. And the feedback was incredibly positive. And so, you know, it just further solidified my belief that, you know, this is just a plant that's been completely tarnished and, and, you know, to a large degree still remains very, very misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about stigma. I think one of the biggest stigmas is for service providers or venture capitalists, whatever coming into the industry and don't consume it all. Don't really understand the plant, if you will. And there's this huge stigma against those people. So that's probably another reason that you've done well in this industry is it, it adds a level of trust of credibility, right? Yeah, I, I think it's very case by case. I will say, you know, there are there are segments of the industry itself. Some are users, some are not. I wouldn't necessarily hold it it against anyone who's not, you know, more so than... Oh, I don't either, but there are a know. lot of people that do. <laughs> It, to each their own is what I would say. You know, for me, I, I, I tend to look at, you know, if you, what this industry really does need is, you know, support from intelligent, hardworking, earnest people. Not to say that that's absent, but that's what any industry needs across the board. And so if someone's coming from, you know, a tech background or a purely, you know, entrepreneurial background and they see the opportunity in the space and, you know, as a leader, they're effective in building an operation that really helps the industry even absent of consuming the product, I think they are, you know, a godsend to the the market overall and the growth of this industry. And I've definitely worked with, you know, lots of operators that don't personally consume, but you see the value of their presence in the market. And I think, you know, that's something that should always be appreciated because they are out there helping alongside, you know, even the diehard fans that, that you know, just champion it across the board. So, you know, I, I think the important thing to realize is, you know, we're all on the same team here. You know, there's enough issues and enough hurdles that the industry has to deal with across the board. Um, and so I think keeping our collective eye on the main prize of advancing this product and getting it out to help more people and service uh, consumers in a better way, I think that that's probably the, the bigger point for me. Well said. Uh, so you moved to LA, you're still lending money, uh, and weed gets legal. Is that what happens? 64 happens. And then you start thinking to yourself, tell us that story a little bit. How did you come up with this idea? Well, so yeah, it, it, it really was, you know, I had, when you get 10, 12 years into any career, you, you know, you sort of get to the routine nature of it. You know, deals are different. The numbers are different, but at top down perspective, you kind of get into this, you know, just set pattern and it's more muscle memory than not. So Part of it was, you know, I didn't find my previous seat as engaging as it had been once because that's what happens when you learn and you grow. You look for your next challenge across the board. Um, at the same time, you know, because I believed in this plan, because I saw the opportunity, I just thought it was the right time. And, and you know, just in speaking with people that I consider to be advisors, people that had been active in the space longer than I had, you know, just speaking about their experience. I think just on a personal level, I was ready for a challenge, but at the same time, this seemed to be one that 
just looked very promising top down. I mean, of course there's issues. It's, it's never going to be easy if you're doing something new. Um, but for me at a personal level, I just thought, you know, this is what I want to wake up every day and spend my time thinking about and, and really trying to wrap my head around how I can be most effective and build a business. So, um, I think it was just a combination of right place, right time, not just in terms of the market and legalization, but also where I was on, on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And kind of talk about the process of raising money for a debt company. I think it's different than a lot of people are familiar with, myself included. Um, how, how does that go? How does that conversation go? I know Casa gave you a bunch of money late last year, but even prior to that, you know, the first money that came in, how did you get that done? Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned Casa Verde Capital, uh, the VC that, you know, led our seed investment round and they've been strong supporters of the business. Um, You know, it's a mix of, you know, just having the right team. I myself personally, in my seat in structured credit, part of, you know, I looked at a broader range of deals. And so what I saw were, you know, especially in 2014, 15, a lot of these fintech platforms that had come out, um, we're accessing the structured credit market to effectively raise debt at lower rates that they would then turn around and charge at marginally higher rates. And you understood sort of the appeal from a debt investor perspective that, you know, if I'm writing individual loans to an individual company, that's sort of concentrated risk. I have my exposure in one name or one bucket. And so the idea of embedding diversification, where as a debt investor, I'm investing into a pool and that capital is now allocated across a variety of names, all of which are screened, all of which have their have met the criteria involved. It really is a risk mitigant and it's a very effective way to gain exposure to the market. And more importantly, it is a investment that produces returns immediately because debt does pay interest. It does pay coupons as opposed to an equity investment where you know, your liquidity window, you're looking, I don't know, five to seven years out if there's an acquisition, if there's an IPO, whatever the case may be. And so the challenge there had always been, you know, translating that same message into something in in cannabis, right? Um, And, you know, for us, one of the things that we've learned has been, you read in the headlines about all the name brand, large operators, the multi-state operators, the companies that RTO'd in Canada, and they are very big in the space. They have brand names that anyone would recognize. But if you look at this industry, the vast majority are small to mid-sized businesses that operate in local geographies. Um, They've probably been involved for a number of years at this point, and they never really got to the point where they were grabbing headlines in terms of their activity. And because our offering is so broad, and because we reach out to every single tier of the market, what we found was there's a lot of value in these small to mid-sized enterprises that were being overlooked by investors that were really just chasing you know, whatever company they just read about in the news. And so for us, in terms of raising the credit facility and and our own bandwidth in order to turn around and service our customers, you know, it was all about translating that message. And what really helped was, you know, the fact that our sister company, Produce Pay, which had already gone down this road and, you know, now is in a position where they have a $200 million credit facility from the largest agriculture focused bank in the world. I think it's very, very analogous to what we're trying to build with Bespoke. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to, you know, keep working and keep knocking on doors. And ultimately, your message will resonate with the right investor that's looking at the opportunity the same way you are. Well, obviously it's working because you raised that $7 million just late in 2019, which I'm sure you're very happy you got in the door. 
before yeah, that content we, started. But yeah. yeah, we actually did further increase that very early into 2020, which uh -huh. was, you know, very, very fortunate for us as a business in the sense that we've lined up additional bandwidth. Um, and part of that, you know, not to say anyone saw this pandemic or this crisis coming or this shutdown in, in capital markets, but starting in Q4, what we just started seeing was a groundswell of demand for debt financing as other options. You know, you already had a limited number of funding sources to begin with, and that reduced even further. And so we were just trying to effectively get ahead of what we you know, forecasted to be increased demand. And it's just put us in a very, very important position where for the industry overall, you know, we remain one of the you know, remaining capital sources that companies can come to and we have the bandwidth to deploy. Our financing isn't tied to broader market volatility. It's on balance sheet. It's committed. And so, you know, for us to lock up that bandwidth to continue servicing our customers has proven to be very, very, very pivotal, um, especially in this period. What I find fascinating is that traditionally uh, venture capitalists are paranoid when their portfolio companies spend money really quickly, right? But mm -hmm. in your case they're super excited to see all of it go out the door, right? Well, it, it's lending, so it's expected yeah. to come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, but, but, but it's, yeah. A, it's a big difference, right? I yes. mean, most venture capitalists are like, how long can this last you, right? right? How can you extend your runway? In your case, it's like, <laughs> how fast can you deploy this, right? Right, exactly. And, and it's not just uh, its speed, but it's also making sure you're deploying it in the right way, right? So one thing that you know, I did see over the life of these fintech companies uh, that came up in 2014 had been ultimately, you get to a point where, you know, people start stretching their credit standards, they start relaxing it, um, and you start to see that performance start to build up. So for us, you know, what was very interesting for me in 2019 was that, uh, you know, especially in the early part of the year, it was very, it was, it was a very frothy equity capital market situation. And Towards the end of 2019, what I realized were some of the biggest wins for our company had been instances where we had walked away from deals just because we didn't feel comfortable with the, you know, final offer in terms of what the middle ground between us and our borrowers were. And so I think discipline is a huge, huge role. It plays a huge role in the success of any financial company, particularly a lender, because as an equity investor, there's upside, right? You're, you're buying the dream, you're buying the growth and the forward-looking um, idea of what this company could grow into. As a debt investor, you know, your upside is everything goes as you expect it to go and you get your principal and interest returned. The flip side is there's a lot more downside. So our risk return profile just forces us to take a more conservative approach when reviewing these companies and having the discipline to, to you know, sacrifice the additional revenue, sacrifice, you know, adding another client for the sake of sticking true to our underwriting principle. I think that's what will ultimately prove our success as a company in the sense that we're not just deploying capital very, very quickly, but we're doing it in a very responsible, sustainable way. And I think that sustainability aspect is very key for anyone who's looking to work with a debt financing provider. It's, you know, there's no point in signing up with a funding source that's going to get turned off the next day. You know, when this crisis broke out, a lot of users on these fintech platforms logged in and found that their credit lines had been pulled and they didn't have access to it really out of the blue. And so if you are building your, your business and you're, you're shaping it, by you know incorporating an additional source of capital like our debt financing you should also be considering how you know are they acting responsibly enough so that they will be around to continue servicing us going forward yeah 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, a question any founder should ask, right? Mm-hmm. At at the time when they're sort of thinking about taking on uh, this kind of financing. Um, so you're going into 2020, going into Corona with this big war chest, mm-hmm. and you had a lot of growth plans for 2020. How much have you seen that increase during this period? I mean, are you seeing a lot more? Uh, How's that gone? Yeah, it's again, lots, lots of reach outs. Um, You know, Q1 2020 was important for us for a variety of reasons. We had, when we launched the company in 2018, we had initially only focused on the California market. Q1 of 2020 was when we branched out. So we're now... um, we have now uh, set up uh, operations and begun servicing co- companies in the Colorado market, in Oregon, in Washington. Um, we expect to add additional states later in the year as we work through our, you know, setting up our internal just, operations. Just this year, you've added those states? Just this year. Yeah, really just this past quarter. And there's um, not, I mean, I'm sure there is some competition in the world, um, but is it because it's not localized? I mean, you know, is it like there just doesn't exist in those states? Well, it's it's across the board. Yeah, there there aren't really, um, you know, a ton of lenders across the board. Um, you will get some sort of smaller shops that write one off deals um, on an individual basis. For us, you know, part of the our approach to the space has been the scalability aspect of it, right? So leveraging our tech platform, leveraging our, you know, standard financing products that can be tweaked with levers and, you know, be made to be more appropriate for each individual borrower. From a top-down perspective, it's a very scalable financing source and a very scalable product. And so for us, you know, offering that out to other established markets and getting our name out there, um, and also broadening out our, our geographic coverage. I think all of it is just opportunity for us. And the way we evaluate it is how can we move into these new markets, continue servicing our existing clients and new clients, and really just build our brand. Um, it not only you know opens up new business opportunities, but it makes us better at our job that we're reviewing these individual markets because cannabis is a very state by state, um, you know, environment. And so it just informs our experience. It, you know, broadens our data set and it just makes us more informed lenders in the space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think one of the really interesting things about your business is, in my opinion, you might be one of the best bets against the black market. Like you're, you're kind of one of the tools that's so needed to remove that. Right. I, I mean, how conscious of, of that are you, I, I guess? How much? Of that well, is- yeah, I, I'd say, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on that on that leg. Right. The black market remains a very, very challenging prospect for operators in the legal space. I like to think that, you know, us alongside a lot of other service providers that are servicing cannabis, we are slowly marching the market standard closer to the legal side. And, you know, the more our financing is available, the more competitive legal companies get relative to the black market space. It unlocks value, I think, for them. It just opens up new opportunities. And our focus on due diligence alongside, you know, the increasing amount of banking services that focus on due diligence and, you know, the growth opportunities in terms of being able to stand up and say, you know, we're one of these companies that doesn't track within the black market space. I think all of that adds value and it ultimately will add value when investors ultimately return, when market conditions improve, the legal market should benefit from all of that. Um, and so we're playing our role in that, in that evolution. Um, and so, you know, that would be the good news. I would say, you know, 
we do need support though from across the board, not just from operators and not just from regulators, but everyone together has to sort of frame up and understand that there may be a short-term opportunity in the black market space, but the risks associated with it are so high that you are really being short-term greedy as opposed to long-term greedy. Because ultimately, this industry, whether you look at polls or trends, it's only growing and it's only solidifying its position in the broader economy. And to sacrifice the potential of that for you know day-to-day, short-term you can sell at a higher price in, into the black market space. I think it's very short-sighted. And I think the more companies succeed, the more that, that message will translate. And so, you know, like I said, we're, we're just one, one piece of that. Because you look at the financials of so many different companies, you have this really like 30,000 foot view of the ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. And if I put my shoes in this, uh, in, of small brands today, Mm-hmm. Um, if I put my feet in the shoes of small small brands today, um, there's sort of this perfect storm where they have really high taxations, which were raised this year, which is insane in California, yep. right? But now they've also got this corona moment, which has helped mm-hmm. or hurt some of them. I know you don't approve everybody that comes through your door. Are these brands going to make it? Are we seeing, or is a whole bunch of these small brands just going to fall off post this crisis? I, I wouldn't expect so, um, particularly given, like you mentioned, you know, the fact that we continue to be an industry that's able to continue selling. And, you know, the one thing that's been really evidence is how loyal the customer base for the cannabis industry has been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's very quickly solidifying itself as a consumer staple. I think on the margin, actually, with this whole pandemic, where people are focused on contamination and exposure to products and you know, you can't leave your house in LA without wearing a mask to go in a grocery store. I think from a consumer perspective, this would probably help in terms of making the value proposition of legal cannabis stand out that much more. It's, you know, this product has been tested, you know, it's been tracked, you know, it's been transported safely. And so I think this actually on the margin might add to the consumer base, just given the broader fears that are out there. Um, And so even if you're a smaller brand, it's, it's size for me has never really dictated success, right? It just depends on how well you execute. So if you're a brand that's really focused on really optimizing your workflow, making sure your product can be put into the hands of your consumer, um, I expect that everyone comes out of this winning, just given there is this growth in sales and there is this growth in demand. And quite frankly, if you know everyone's sitting at home quarantined right now, I would have to imagine that a lot of people that never really considered you know, even trying cannabis would be in a position to maybe, maybe try it out and could help in terms of stress, stress related uh, management across the board. We're seeing alcohol sales, you know, remain consistently higher. And so I think on the margins, this actually might be more of an opportunity for these, even if you're a smaller brand to really get your product out there and, and start telling your story. So to be inflammatory, did you just say that Corona was good for the cannabis industry? Yeah. That- yes, you can direct quote. No, <laughs> <laughs> I did. No, it, it's, it's, there's challenges, right? There's, there's always challenges. But in terms of, you know, whether you're looking at from a governmental perspective, getting that vote of approval to be carved out as an essential medicine, being allowed to continue servicing and selling product, I think those are things that no one could have forecast, and they're definitely positive for the industry. Now, the flip side is no one really knows how this is going to shake out. Is it going to get worse? Are there going to be more draconian quarantine measures being put in? There's a lot of unknowns out there, right? So it's not as though 
problem solved, everything's great. And as much as you read about, you know, on a statewide level, you know, going back to your 30 foot, uh, 30,000 foot view, Yes, in general, sales sales have boomed, but you are seeing the impacts of quarantine hit local regionalities. And this is something that, you know, our data and our involvement within the market really gives us insight to is if you have businesses that were operating close to areas that are very dependent on tourism or very dependent on conferences or events or music festivals, they're definitely seeing the impact of reduced human activity and, and you know, consumer activity and, and tourism and travel. So it's not across the board, everyone's winning, but in general, um, especially relative to other industries, I think we've been handed a lot of favorable wins recently. And so, um, you know, I'm optimistic. It's it's all you could really hope for when you're dealing with a situation like this that no one's encountered before. I'm still so uh, delightfully surprised that it was deemed essential. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just like where we've come from not that far long ago, the idea that this would be the businesses you keep, keep open is just still so cool. It's just yeah, so cool. No. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and no, no one could have seen it happen. Um, I think... A lot of the leaders in the industry that have spent a lot of time working with governments, both on a state and local level, I think they they are to be commended for, you know, yeah. really translating the message that this is an important industry. And it's, it's, you know, something that the consumers will want. And quite frankly, if there's a safe and responsible way to keep the product flowing, that it's something that everyone should be devoting their energy towards. And the fact that that resonated, I think, speaks very highly to not just the people championing that message, but also the you know government officials that actually listened to it and, and reacted appropriately. I feel like we're finding this really nice balance because they've deemed it essential, but not in a medical way, right? right. Um, we've escaped that sort of medical prescription, whatever. We very much have moved into this wellness aspect yes. Um, and I think that's also really cool. Nobody said, oh yeah, it's staying open because it's like the pharmacy. You right. Know, nobody said that, you know? Right. So, yeah. yeah. No. And it just goes to the idea of it being a consumer staple. I mean, you know, now you can have alcohol delivered to directly to your apartment. You can order drinks from a restaurant. And so, you know, I think it's, it's encouraging to see government officials just, you know, not come down with old school draconian measures, you know, we've never allowed this, so we'll just continue to never allow it. Um, that flexibility and that adaptability is it's what we need as a society to get through this. And, and it's encouraging to see that actually play out. So as a society, anxiety and stress has to be at an all time high right now, which also is great for cannabis in some ways. But outside of cannabis, how do you, uh, well, first, I guess, measure, but then also manage your own stress. You know, I mean, you're in a time where I think a lot of people, provided they have a job, provided they have enough money, are sort of in mellow mode. And your mm -hmm. business has like ramped up, even in the environment of all this other crazy stuff happening. How, how do you manage your your day to day stress? Yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely been incredibly busy. I feel like I'm you know, especially myself and the team here, I, th I think we're actually working more in quarantine than we were pre-quarantine. Um, and, you know, there are stresses, there are challenges. For me, it tends to be more of, you know, not necessarily, you know, stressing about one thing or the other, but what I, tr what I 
find myself is sometimes there's just so much to do that you can get overwhelmed. And I think, especially in this environment where you wake up, you don't leave your apartment, you stay here working, and then you go to sleep. I think it's very important to take some time for yourself. Um, remember that, you know, even if it's just something as simple as going for a walk or, you know, calling family or friends and just having some element of human connection and some activity, um, putting things in perspective, understanding, you know, just how fortunate my company has been and, and, you know, this industry overall, I think just keeping that perspective and also forcing yourself to, to focus on your wellness and your health. I think that's, that's been very key and very pivotal. Um, but it remains to be a challenge because, you know, there is a lot to do and it is very busy and, you know, not just for us, but for our clients, if someone, you know, is looking for financing and we want to work with them, you know, we owe it to them as a service provider in order to prioritize that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, very, these are very interesting times that we live in. And so just keeping a level head and being able to think rationally and, and keeping yourself in a place where you're not pressured and you're not jumping the gun. I think that that just translates into the success of everything you're doing um, across the board. Well said. I think that's as good a place to start to wrap up as any. Uh, how can uh, our audience help you? Uh, are you hiring for anything by chance? You know, this is your chance to plug whatever you'd like. So. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd say one of the benefits for us as a company has been because we are, you know, have always been lean. We've always leveraged technology to sort of offer our services as broadly as possible. We are actually in an attractive position right now as you know, other companies go through challenges to really add people that come in with you know, experience within the industry that have experience sort of dealing with other operations that have grown. I think we're constantly on the lookout for new talent and smart, earnest people, um, you know, not just within the cannabis space, but in general. So you know, we are keeping an eye open on the, the labor market and, and adding bodies um, and really just filling holes in the, in the company that I think will really strengthen our offering. And then beyond that, you know, it's just uh, if you're within the industry and if you're exploring debt financing or if you're really not sure how it works, um, which is completely fair given its lack of availability across the board, you know, I would say just come have a conversation with us. You know, there's no commitment. Um, we're more than happy to explain what we bring to the table and how you could effectively use it. And a big part of this for us has been, you know, in terms of scaling this business, it's been education for the market, right? Everyone has their day job. Everyone's focused on, you know, the day-to-day -day operational challenges in front of them. I wouldn't expect them to sit around and, you know, think over a glass of wine about how to use debt financing effectively, right? That's our job. And so to the extent you just want to learn more um, or are interested, you know, feel free to reach out. And, you know, it's nothing more than a conversation and a data point. And at the very least, you will walk away more informed about what your options are and how you should be thinking about fundraising. Well said. Well, thanks again, man. It's been great. I look forward to seeing you in person when possible. We're right Same. down the street from each other, but we're doing our best to- uh, So close and yet so far. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Someday we'll be sharing a joint again soon. I, I yes. believe that. Uh, all right, man. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great chatting and uh, stay safe out there. You too.